Thank you for supporting the Circe Podcast Network by listening, sharing, and giving feedback to our shows. As you may know, the Circe Institute is in the midst of our year-end fundraising campaign. Your support last year enabled us to add several key members to the Circe team. With your continued help, we are excited about what the future holds. In particular, donor support helps us provide free resources like these podcasts and the former journal. Please visit circeinstitute.org backslash donate to see more about all you make possible and to support us this year. Welcome to this week's episode of Quiddity on the Circe Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. As we've talked about on previous episodes, one thing I want to do on Quiddity is bring in voices from higher education to get their perspective on the Christian classical education renewal and to present opportunities for students after high school. Today's guest is Eric Ellis, professor of education at Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. Eric holds a BA in Greek and Latin, an MA in history from Baylor, as well as a master of medieval studies, an MA in classics, and a PhD in medieval studies from the University of Notre Dame. Thanks for joining me, Eric. Very welcome. Good to be here. Uh, first, tell me a little bit about what you're teaching at Hillsdale and what brought you there. I teach uh, in the classical education program. So we serve as a general ed requirement, which is basically trivium. We call it uh, uh, Core 150 Logic and Rhetoric. So that's our bread and butter in the undergraduate program. I also teach an upper level course for our minors in classical education called Philosophy of Education. And in the master's program, I have uh, started a um, uh, history of education. So an upper, you know, upper division, uh, graduate level course, history of education, like I could say from, from Chiron to Bismarck. So starting, uh, basically with informal education in the Greek bronze age and going up to about 1900 in continental Europe. We'll, uh, we're in our first year of our MA program. So I'll be expanding, uh, my course offerings as the, as the, uh, program gets underway more fully. Okay. And what brought you to Hillsdale? A series of accidents, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I went to as you as you mentioned. I got my doctorate at Notre Dame, which is not too far from Hillsdale. And uh, there there's uh, let's say the social networks of both institutions cross over in various ways. So I started coming to Hillsdale uh, while I was a graduate student, and a lot of Hillsdale people go to Notre Dame fairly regularly. So I got to know the institution that way. Uh, I did some writing about classical education did an interview for Hillsdale's uh, radio station on their classical education program. And uh, I had had a background in K-12 teaching before I went to graduate school. So, um, and I gave a talk and then I guess they liked the talk. So about a year and a half later, uh, I uh, interviewed for the job and they hired me. All right. That's what I, that's how I got the job at Cersei. I just kept hanging around until yeah. they, <laughs> until they found something for me to do. Um, Okay, well, that's that. That kind of leads us into maybe our, my first question. You know, um, there's lots of us working in the classical renewal uh, from K through 12 into the college realm, um, and everybody kind of has a, their own uh, definition or their own perspective on what is classical. So, just kind of from coming from where you're from, both your time at Notre Dame and now with Hillsdale, um, what what is classical education from from where you sit? I I take a uh an etymological approach to the question. So uh, you could even say etymological Aristotelian. So I wanted to know uh, what both components meant. So if we have a, a, a genus of education and a species of classical, what do those terms mean? 
Uh, but I'm also more of a historian than a philosopher. I have a, a curse that when I'm around philosophers, they accuse me of being too historical. And when I'm around historians, they accuse me of being too philosophical, which I suppose is why I went to a, a interdisciplinary doctoral program and now teach in an education department. So it all worked out. Um, but with the word education, and this is something I've been working with my students on in my education history of education course, it's a, it's a bit of an ambivalent term, and I saw two streams uh, operative in our Western tradition, one of which I called paideia, and the other one I called institutio. And it was my claim that the mainstream in the Western tradition over the last 2,000 years has been institutio, which is to say, when we think, when I say education and I do free word association, people think of classrooms, uh, set curricula, um, instruction being given by a teacher who uh, engages in teaching as a profession who has some uh, technical skill and qualification to do so. And uh, that's really a Roman thing, not a Greek thing. Whereas the Greek understanding of paideia is much, much bigger than the classroom experience. And because of that, it tends to be closely aligned with uh, the process of enculturation. Hmm. That has good and bad aspects. Uh, good aspects is if you have a, a strong consensus about cultural cultural norms and, and values uh, and common ground to work very well. Uh, if you don't and you, you happen to live in a pluralistic society, it can become problematic. Um, and as Karl Popper, uh, one of the survivors of the Third Reich, uh, said hmm. he he considered Plato to have been the first totalitarian with huh. his uh, educational regime. So I've done a lot of thinking about that. And I think the mainstream of our tradition, which is to say the history, which isn't necessarily a prescription for what it should be today, is this idea of Roman institutio, which is a time-limited, focused cultivation of eloquence by means of the seven liberal arts of language and number. So that's education. And then uh, classical comes from the word classus, which means fleet, but comes to mean, uh, we could say, an exemplum that's worthy of imitation. So inherent in the definition of classical education would be a, that form of education or that regime of education that is focused on the imitation of excellent examples. Um, so there's implied in that a canon, uh, and also I would think a series of definite practices which again ties in with with our idea of the the arts, uh, the seven arts. So, um, and I myself am the product of a great books education and uh, a classics program at Baylor. Um, and I, I don't exactly want to drive a wedge between great books education and classical education, but I do think they're distinct. Mm. Um, if we if we understand classical education is somehow being preparatory or propedeutic to a philosophical education so and and uh classical education in my opinion historically and in the present is not afraid of textbooks in the way that adler was <laughs> so we see that uh it can sometimes be well not sometimes it's often helpful uh often essential to use good textbook material and the romans were good textbook writers uh they seem to know how to uh give people definite answers to problems that serve them well uh, and not just in their particular time, but across time and place for a very long period. Whereas the 
Greek notion of piety is all about asking questions and entering a conversation. The, the uh, Roman idea of institutio is about training people uh, to be eloquent and giving them what they need in order to start philosophizing, to answer the call to philosophize. So that's my very long explanation of what I understand classical education to be. Oh, there's a lot there that I want to kind of dig into a little bit. Um, first, I think I really, I really like that uh, that look at the word classic. Um, I think we tend to think of it as just we're doing what they used to do as part of this renewal. But to have that kind of a more of a a deeper meaning attached to the word there, that etymologically, that it's it's what's excellent. Um, I think is good for us to keep in mind. I'd like to start uh, maybe follow up on on that with. If you give us some examples of what you mean when you say the Romans had excellent textbooks, because I think for for many of us, and particularly those of us in the classical movement and those of us who didn't receive a great books or a classical education growing up, our our view of a textbook is pretty um, negative uh, based on the kind of textbooks what we're used to. So when you say that the Romans produced great textbooks and they're useful for this institutio version of education, um, what kind of things are you talking about? I think. Uh... What comes to mind in the in the first place is, well, I'll contrast it with, say, how we might go about doing trivium in a great books program. And when I say great books, I mean a whole hog like they might have at St. John's College or Thomas Aquinas College, where we're going to teach logic by reading Aristotle's Organon. Uh-huh. Um, that's a very high bar. Or we're going to learn Newton. Uh, we're going to learn calculus by reading Newton's Principia. These are okay. these are great noble goals. Um, but I think they uh might not work too well for very young children or adolescents or even very clever adults uh might not might not have the the the, the quickest and most efficient path so what i mean by that is uh if you read saint augustine's confessions uh he tells us that he never learned greek which i'm not sure is exactly true and that he never read plato but what he read were libri platonici and what he meant by that were the kinds of uh they were essentially textbooks of philosophy that uh, gave people an orientation in uh, in a in a particular school's thought uh it's 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 school of thought um and if you look at the curriculum that say Boethius developed and his uh his collaborator Cassiodorus at the end of antiquity they're writing textbooks so they're taking a, a grand tradition of Greek culture and trying to come up with a way to transmit that to posterity. And I think they did an excellent job. I think it worked really well for over a thousand years. Uh, we could talk about the the Isagoge, the introduction, uh, which is the logic textbook in both the, the Greek and Latin worlds uh, throughout late antiquity and the Middle Ages, because it's clearer, it's uh, easier, it's faster than the Organon. The Organon's, I don't know, 1,200 pages. The Isagoge get you in, get you orient, uh, uh, oriented. Similarly, uh, uh, the Romans and the medievals, and even during the Renaissance, they would have introduced, or they did introduce their students to rhetoric using uh, Cicero or the rhetoric Adorinium rather than Aristotle, because they, were, they wanted to give people practice first um, rather than theoretical definitions. So uh, competence in practice preceded theoretical understanding and i think in our great books way of doing things we tend to privilege uh understanding 
and uh, undervalued practice. Um, you could you could argue that the Romans were inductive if the Greeks were deductive in their in their practice of education. But the Greeks ended up adopting the Roman system of education too. So uh, <laughs> even they had um, uh, some respect for it. So that's that's the kind of thing. If we think if we compare a text like Aristotle's rhetoric to uh, uh, to Cicero's rhetorical works. Cicero's rhetorical works are, in my experience, easier to teach um, because they provide more answers and ask fewer questions. Not to say we don't want to ask questions, but if we're thinking about how do we uh, establish a practice of teaching that develops competence and leads to understanding rather than opening up all the questions right at the beginning and entering this conversation, um, that's a beautiful thing to do. But I think that as classical education becomes more of a movement that is institutionalized, it might be helpful for us to rediscover these great textbooks, not just the great books, but also the great textbooks uh, from our uh, from our from our tradition. And look at what the wisdom of that was. I think what Adler was trying to do, and what a lot of our uh, predecessors in the great books movement were trying to do, was expose people to philosophy in a in a very short amount of time which is very helpful to me i had four semesters of great books in my uh in my undergraduate and and uh, degree and it changed my life but what if we don't have to only spend four semesters what if we have 13 12 10 years to teach people latin and greek to teach them the seven liberal arts uh and really prepare them give them a, a firm foundation I don't think that was possible even 20 years ago, but I do think it's mm. possible now. And that's the sort of uh, recovery of the old practice of classical education that I think would be helpful. Yeah, that's that's something we talk about here a lot in, in our conferences. You know, this is something we're we're recovering piece by piece, um, something we kind of blew up for about 150 years and are putting back together. Um, it's interesting you bring up you bring up Adler because I think there are others uh, within I mean I know there are others within 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 the renewal that talk about his his list of books and things that um, and maybe even stories later in life he would have revised it but didn't get much chance to ch- add some things back in particularly things from say like the Church Fathers that kind of from that big gap that's in his timeline um, but I think also probably some of these other works cer- certainly things by Cicero. Um, would have been things that many many people in the current renewal would think are important to go back and, and revisit. I'm less familiar with Boethius's education works, which is interesting to me. I, I kind of read Constellation of Philosophy uh, in the in the past year um, and really loved it. But it, what what are some of the, you said he worked on some textbooks as well with with someone else? Yeah, so uh, he Boethius had a grand plan to translate all of Plato and Aristotle into Latin. Uh, I think he. He recognized that things were changing in the sixth century and that if no one did anything to communicate Greek wisdom to the Latin West, then it wouldn't happen and that would be closed off. Um, he, uh, uh, as you know, <laughs> he he experienced a bad fortune and was not able to complete his plan. But one of the things he was able to do was give to posterity uh, the term quadrivium, so this canon of the four arts, which had been sort of recognized before him, but he named it, and naming a, naming a thing uh, gives it a definite uh, existence in a way that 
you know, something that everybody knows, but nobody can 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 name uh, doesn't. So he gave us uh, the De Arithmetica and the De Musica, which um, are not as well known as I think they ought to be, partly because translations are are difficult to acquire. They do exist, but uh, they're either not uh, they're not easy to use editions or they're impossible to find. So that's that's one of my scholarly projects is to try to bring those texts to a wider audience. But when he says arithmetic or music, he's not really talking about those in the same way we see them. So he's developing an idea of uh, the, the reflection of cosmic harmony in the fabric of the universe. So that's why one studies uh, the arts of number in antiquity and in the Middle Ages. Um, he develops this canon of the seven liberal arts. So the trivium and quadrivium. And then uh, his cousin, Cassiodorus, who sort of took over his job after Boethius's execution. Um, Italy in the sixth century was a very unstable place. So uh, Cassiodorus founded a, a monastery in Southern Italy called Vivarium. And uh, he put his library there and he wrote a book called the uh, Institutes or the Institutions, which contemporary scholars think is basically a user's guide to the library. But in the midst of telling his uh, his fellow monks what his books are and in what order they ought to be read and what the good commentaries are for a given book of the Bible, he simultaneously establishes a hierarchy of learning um, and a wish list for all monasteries for the next thousand years. So everybody's trying to get all the books that Cassidorus talks about in his and then uh, read them in the way and in the order that he establishes. And he explains how all of the books fit together into a single vision of knowledge, a single framework of knowledge, and how they build on one another. So there's a there's a definite uh, hierarchy and synergy in Cassiodorus's vision that's building off of Boethius. And I think that's that's the work that's being done in the sixth century. People criticize this late antique stuff for not being creative or original, mm -hmm. which arguably it's not. But I think that's the whole problem with our reception of the Roman tradition is the Romans are very good at canonizing things and making them efficient and making them communicable and transferable. Mm. Uh, within a hundred years, we have a copy of this monastery Vivarium uh, in southern Italy that's been built at the uh, up in Yorkshire in in northern uh, England. And mm. everyone agrees they're the they're the uh, the best educated people in Europe. So everybody wants them to come and teach in their schools. Um, that's an amazing feat to do in a century and a half. Um, and I, I think we really undervalue that. And as we look at how to make our, as I say, make our movement less of a cottage, cottage industry and more of an institutionalized thing uh, with hundreds of schools and thousands of students and uh, graduate programs. I think we need to think again about how do we um, not just have these great conversations, but also look at what are the uh, what is the information that is really essential and how can we how can we package it and communicate it? Uh, both to a broad contemporary audience, but also for posterity. And I think if we look at the Roman tradition and the medieval tradition, we get a lot of answers to that to those questions. 
do you see that the, sorry the medieval tradition as um where those two the paideia and the institutio are are being woven together um maybe as best they have been i think so um it's it's difficult you you have to realize see the 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 roman idea of institutio is very limited um it is in the first instance pre-professional training right so it is cultivation of eloquence for service to the state uh which means uh being an advocate in the law courts or addressing the troops before you fight right um and and some other things too but that, that that's basically the the ideal behind it um and then there's an expectation that there's going to be a surrounding culture that is going to humanize you um but we think of roman institutio as providing sort of a baseline morality and a set of skills and exempla a fund of culture um that's going to get you right to the threshold of philosophy but not push you through the door um so paideia is necessary to take you the rest of the way uh in my opinion through philosophy and then faith uh a faith tradition would get you to theology um and that's helpful to me is thinking about classical education as being this preparatory stage so philosophy and theology are uh the crowning achievements but they're successors to what i mean by institutio it's very difficult to decide how we might go about paideia today i think they had it easier in the middle ages you have to remember that these these students who were who were studying cicero's rhetoric in their schools were also participating in the divine office uh praying the psalms living in an integral christian community hmm. um that is is not practical for a wide variety of reasons uh even for uh very committed christian people today uh but especially not in our in our uh, uh government schools so yes i would say uh insofar as i am a christian <laughs> i think that the christian paideia of uh of the middle ages was an improvement uh on the uh the the, the greek uh pagan paideia which is of course very noble um but i think that the institutio the institutionalization of education by the romans uh got a lot more people a lot further than the informal uh process of enculturation that say was was practiced uh before the sophists arrived and before the romans uh built schools and, and figured out how to do this stuff um i think i hope i would say with our classical education movement if we return to this idea of institutio supplemented by paideia it'll help us reach a larger audience and it'll also take some pressure off of our educators if we say we're only going to do this part and uh, we have to have the parents participating we have to do this in partnership with the churches and the parents and we have to build a good culture we can't rely on the school to be the single institution in our community that provides culture for our students and 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 raises our students for us so i think that's a return uh, in a lot of ways we need i think we need to more strictly define what it is that we do and we need to remind uh the communities we we live in that we can't possibly do everything you you, you need to step up to um and that's 
to return to your original question, I think that that's that's we see that going on in uh, the early Christian Middle Ages with institutions like monasteries, cathedral schools. Um, it's a participation between the school and the surrounding culture. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'd, I'd like to take a little bit of a turn into a, um, a more specific area. Uh, we get this question a lot. I'm sure you you do too. Um, you know, when when it comes, you know, we're talking about the Greek paideia, we're talking about the Roman institutio, um, and the text by and large, like you know, Boethius is trying to bring the Greek into the Latin, and now we have the Latin being brought into everything else after that. Um, most schools tend to focus on on if they're teaching a language, teaching Latin, sometimes Greek if they can if they can find someone. Um, why why the focus on Latin and Greek in classical education? I uh, they are the sources of our tradition, um, and I think the reason Latin in particular. I had a pretty long conversation with a good friend of mine about uh, the centrality of Latin. He was arguing for the centrality of Greek. <laughs> and my response to that was to uh, go back to Brothers Karamazov. So my friend was talking about how, well, that's true for Western Europe. You could argue for the centrality of Latin for Western Europe. But what about what about Eastern Europe uh, or, or parts of Central Europe? And I said, if you read Brother Karamazov, what are the boys complaining about having to study? And they're complaining about having to study Latin. Uh, not Greek. <laughs> and and that's because Russia adopted the Western education system in the 18th century. They didn't really have much of a of an education system before that time. And my answer is going to be that Latin is more classical than Greek, uh, given what I mean, what I meant by the term classical. Classical doesn't mean earliest. Um, it doesn't mean first. It means cleanest, most excellent. When we talk about classical art or classical music, Right. There's a there's a lot of Western art music, both before and after the classical period. But when we talk about classical, we mean Mozart and Haydn. Um, And the reason we we call Mozart and Haydn classical is because they're crystalline and hard and formal. Uh, If you study Mozart, Mozart symphonies, you know that they 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 follow a strict five paragraph essay form called the sonata form. Um, And the people before that didn't have it quite so formalized. And the people after that got more playful. Um, but that's what we mean by the classical. It's this its this sort of golden mean between the archaic and the Baroque um, that is the stable incarnation of the excellent. And uh, for people who have studied both Latin and Greek, and I love Greek, uh, Greek is supple and fluid and copious in a way that just Latin just is not. <laughs> um, when you talk about studying Greek, you'll have people who say we should start with New Testament Greek. Other people say we should start with uh, 5th century Athens, uh, Attic prose. Other people who say we should start with Homer. And the reason we have disagreement there is because every time you attempt to read a new uh, a new Greek author, you have to learn a new dialect of Greek. Um, there isn't really a standard form of Greek. Uh, whereas Latin, despite its broad distribution, distribution, there's more agreement on where we should start, and uh, there's less disagreement about what the standard form ought to be. There's this beautiful thing in Greek where if one is writing lyric poetry, uh, one needs to write in the Iolic dialect, and if one is writing epic, one must imitate um, Homer, and if one is going to write 
uh, prose, one must imitate Plato. But if one's going to write history, one must imitate Herodotus or Thucydides. Uh, and Herodotus and Thucydides uh, wrote in different dialects. Uh, so it depends on what kind of historian one wants to be. Now, uh, I think it's beautiful if we had an educational system that would support that level of uh, articulate eloquence and and linguistic expertise. But I don't think we do. And I think there was wisdom in uh, Latin first and then Greek after, because once you've once you've trained up in Latin, so Latin is like a textbook, huh. and Greek is like a great book, if I can use an analogy. Okay, okay, I like <laughs> uh, that. Uh, I think Latin trains uh, is a better instrument for training uh, than Greek. Um, uh, without at all saying we shouldn't study Greek, my hope is that as the classical education movement develops. Uh, we'll get so good at Latin that we'll have students begging us to teach Greek, which I know is the case at some of the schools uh, I've been uh, I've been in contact with, and it's the case at Hillsdale College. I have colleagues in our classics department who were surprised this year that there was almost no enrollment in beginning Latin. Uh, but that doesn't mean our Latin program is 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 failing or is going to fail. What what's happened is is that so many of our students have already had four, five, six years of Latin that now uh, there's very little demand for beginning Latin. Now everyone's taking intermediate and advanced Latin. And for the first time, uh, we've had uh, three sections of beginning Greek this fall semester. I think this is going to be a new normal uh, for institutions like Hillsdale College going forward and, and colleges that colleges and universities that can draw on this pool of uh, classically educated young people. So I think the future is very bright. Um, but uh, that's my answer to why I think Latin, uh, not rather than Greek, but before Greek, and then why language uh, and why the classical in particular. Um, some of the people who have studied Latin and Greek, like C.S. Lewis or even Waugh, have talked about how long engagement, uh, uh, well, first off, in order to really learn learn about language, uh, you need to study a foreign language. It's much easier to learn uh, linguistic concepts uh, by distinction. It's hard to learn about your own language. Huh. Uh, you need to you need a certain distance. Um, and the great thing about Latin is that, in a way, it belongs to everyone. Uh, even even people in Eastern Europe uh, or the uh, Eastern Mediterranean, and. Uh, it just has this wonderful, like I said, crystalline structure, uh, clarity to it that I do think Greek lacks, like English. Uh, Greek is like English. English is, uh, you know, the uh, the Oxford Latin Dictionary is one stout volume. Uh, the new Greek lexicon is two volumes. And the Oxford English Dictionary is something like 24 volumes. So <laughs> we got a lot of words and we got a lot of ways to turn, uh, turn phrases. Um, uh, Latin doesn't. Um, so that teaches us a, a certain discipline of the tongue um, uh, that I think is is useful for for everyone, and teaches us uh, both what language is and 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 how to control it. Um, it's a human product, Latin, but I think it's as close to an ideal abstract form of language as uh, anyone's devised quite yet. What would you say to someone who who would ask, uh, you know, well, why why Greek and Latin and not, uh, well, you know, I, I should say maybe a, an ancient form of Greek um, 
versus say Spanish or French or German or some other, what, what typically is taught as the foreign language in let's say American schools? Yeah, well, I, I had a long conversation with a good friend of mine who works with uh, some of the classical charter schools on their modern foreign language uh, teaching. And she's expressing frustration that's coming from a lot of the the, the teachers in those schools that uh, even in, we're not talking about the method, we're talking about, say, curricular ends. In a, in a Spanish curriculum, you have something like an assumption, uh, an implicit assumption with the way the curriculum is written that our students are going to need to go at some point and order a taco in Mexico City. And the fact is that 99% of the students in that classroom will never, ever do that. So uh, what if we thought that the point of learning Spanish was not some practical, touristic, or business end, but rather humanizing our students and giving them access to uh, a culture that is not their own? Might we then order our curriculum to, say, reading Cervantes? Hmm. Um, that would probably fit our our philosophy of classical education better. So that would be the that would be the argument is that we have sort of a mix, mismatch um, with what we say we're doing in classical schools and what we're actually doing in our modern foreign language classrooms. I'm not against modern foreign languages. I've studied uh, many of them myself. I I uh, spent the last two years in Chile where I uh, taught it in Spanish. So. I'm not, of course, not against Spanish instruction, um, but if we if we discount the utilitarian, uh, pragmatic reason for linguistic study, which I think we ought to, um, it's not very useful to know a language other than English, to be quite honest. Hmm. That's the unfortunate thing about being a monolingual English speaker, is it's very hard to get competent because everyone else studies English. So uh, the economic, in my opinion, the economic and utilitarian arguments for foreign language study for native English speakers are very bad ones. Um, so we ought to be making humanistic uh, arguments for the study of all languages. And say, even with Chinese, I think, let's say you've got a conversational Chinese. Wouldn't it be better if you could talk about Confucius uh, or about Taoism a bit? Uh, I think we've this, this pragmatic uh, implicit pragmatic assumption in our modern foreign language that that all we need to do or most of what we need to do is talk about uh, bathrooms at airports <laughs> rather than philosophy and uh, humanism uh, was a real mistake. And if you look at modern foreign language curricula up through the 1960s, if it's a German curriculum, they assume that in the third or fourth year, you're going to be reading Goethe. Or if it's a Spanish curriculum, you're going the, the point, the, the end point of the curriculum is Cervantes or Dante. Hmm. I think we need to regain that. So then the question, after I've convinced people that we ought to have humanistic ends to all of our linguistic study, then we come back to the question of, well, what is truly classical? And uh, the answer there is Greek and Latin. Um, and as I tried to explain, Latin more than Greek, in my opinion. Uh, Greek is more profound, more copious, uh, and therefore much more difficult, uh, especially as your, your first round. If you look at the history of classical education, it's very rare that uh, a regime of classical education produced bilingual people. What I mean by that is people who studied Latin for seven or eight or more years in their uh, primary, primary and secondary education uh, often knew five or six languages. 
um, because they they had that foundational experience of of learning Latin, learning how to learn, learning what language was, uh, learning what beauty, uh, linguistic beauty was, um, learning what linguistic order was. And once they had done that, well, uh, you know, picking up Italian or Spanish or French or German or Russian is fairly elementary and quick. Uh, that's been my experience. Um, and I know, like I say, with historical examples, if you look at people like Lewis and Tolkien, who were extraordinary individuals, but not extraordinary in their, uh, they went to school with a lot of other people who had similar linguistic competence uh, as that, that they did. Um, that seems to have been a normal byproduct or a normal product of this educational regime based on the study of Latin and Greek. So, um, yeah. Of course, Cervantes and Goethe are wonderful, uh, but Homer and Virgil are better. <laughs> uh -huh. um, so if somebody's accepted my uh, my humanistic rationale for uh, language, uh, foreign language study or language study, we could say, then I think it's not it's it, that's that's a much harder argument. But if we can uh -huh. accept that, that the reason we're studying language is not to find out where the bathroom is or uh uh talk to uh people at the airport but rather to humanize ourselves and learn about culture um and learn what language is and it's very hard to argue for something uh other than latin and greek at least in our uh in our western civilization um i think that there are regimes of classical education uh in the islamic world uh it's been one of the amazing discoveries they still basically in the mass media uh, use a form of classical Arabic because everyone studies classical Arabic to read the Quran. Huh. Um, and in a huge uh, linguistic, uh, linguistically diverse Islamic world where people from Morocco can't understand people from Palestine, uh, Al Jazeera, the Arabic CNN broadcasts in a form of classical Arabic because huh. uh, everybody understands it. So I'm not saying necessarily that we'll have, you know, Latin serving that, that role anytime soon, but uh, it's hard to come up with another candidate. If we're going to talk about something that's going to serve people from Eastern Europe to South America to Canada, um, I think it's Latin and Greek. Well, I think we covered most of what we were going to talk about there as far as the place fit in the classroom. And uh, that humanistic argument, I think, is such an important one. Um, thank you for articulating that. You mentioned your time in, in Chile. And then just now you talked about, you know, if there's going to be something that ties ties a lot of these regions together and at least in the western hemisphere it's going to be you know this study of latin and then and then and then after that maybe greek when you were teaching in chile was that was that within a classical type of environment or something that was moving that direction there it's interesting they don't really have classical schools like like we would understand them in the united states um there's no faculty of classics in mm -hmm. chile uh that's been the case since i think the 1970s so the interesting thing about that, it doesn't mean that no one learns Latin and Greek. Uh, what it means is that at the university I was, the Universidad de los Andes in Santiago, um, that Latin and Greek is taught by the philosophy faculty, hmm. uh, which I loved. So I was in the I was in I was I was on a two year postdoc uh, in the faculty of philosophy, teaching master's students uh, Latin and Greek, uh, which was wonderful because usually. We have a, what I would say language and linguistics or language and literature um, uh, orientation in our classics programs. 
So to have philosophy students who are wanting to use Latin and Greek practically <laughs> to study <laughs> philosophy and theology was wonderful. Um, and there is a, there's like there is everywhere, I think there's dissatisfaction with the current regime of primary and secondary and even higher education uh, because it is utilitarian, pre-professional. Um, and they're looking for something. I was able to uh, uh, get some connections between uh, the university where I was and some of the great books organizations in the United States. Um, and I think that uh, that's going to bear fruit very soon. And I think as, as, as it did in the United States, you'll have a movement that begins with undergraduates and then slowly moves down into the schools. Um, it's rather difficult uh, in the rest of the world because of how strongly intertwined uh, central governments are with education. We don't recognize, I think, how uh, different our system of education is and how much control uh, we truly have. We, we have an extremely robust uh, private educational system that just doesn't exist in mm -hmm. most of the rest of the world. Uh, which always offers an alternative. Uh, it can be very expensive, but there's there is there is a strong alternative, um, and it's not only for the very very wealthy. Um, but even within our public publicly funded system, we have a diversity and uh, uh, strong impetus towards local control and local diversity to to serve different uh, different groups of people, different communities. Um, they don't have that in a lot of places. That's changing. I have friends in Argentina who are uh, working with the homeschool movement there. Uh, there are starting to be, there is quite a lot going on in the Hispanic world with uh, great books. And great books, I think, creates a desire for Latin and Greek. It's sort of a generational thing. Maybe it, it works every, uh, in, in, in decade long, it's a decade long process, right? So uh -huh, uh -huh. first we get our, our great book seminar, Socratic seminar. People are participating in philosophy uh, through this Adlerian uh, seminar format, but then they want to study the original languages. Um, and how do we do that? And I think we really need to work to build these networks uh, because there are lots of people seemingly everywhere. Um, Central Europe, the UK, um, there's a lot of dissatisfaction in the world. And I think we've got, we've got riches in the United States that uh, we need to we need to be in a position to to share yeah uh we we you know we've we've partnered with some people in central and south america on portuguese and spanish translations of things um i know others in the classical renewal here in the u.s have done that as well um as well as russia uh, several years back and and now um, a big uptick in places like australia and the uk for the existing um, english language materials so it's exciting to see that this kind of bubbling up in lots of other places. And I'm excited to see how, oh, what that might look like as, as more countries kind of, mm -hmm. uh, kind of go back to some, some of their roots educationally. Well, I wanted to give you just a few minutes, like a lot of, most of our listeners actually are probably parents, teachers, headmasters. Um, and, uh, we're always being asked, you know, okay, what, where do I send my kid after, after 12 years of classical education? I don't want to send them to XYZ. 
And so I want to give you a little bit of chance to talk about the undergrad programs first uh, there at Hillsdale. Um, you know, we have some folks connected with the Cersei Institute who have gone through there. I know a few people um, who are graduates as well, but if you could just give us a little bit of information about what it has for the the student coming out of the classical K-12 school or homeschool setting. Yeah, well, we have a very strong classics program. Uh, it's getting bigger. I think most classical uh uh, departments of classics in the United States are getting smaller and closing. Uh, ours is getting bigger every year. So if you've had several years of Latin and Greek and and want to continue and and spread your wings and flourish, Hills is a great place to do that. Uh, I have lots of friends in our history and English departments. Uh, they produce wonderful graduates. Um, and you know I've only been here a semester, so um, and and I'm in the, I'm in the Department of Education, which we 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 don't actually have a major. Uh, we have a minor, and as far as I know, it'll always be that way. We uh, we're committed to the idea that a teacher needs to know uh, needs to know a subject, needs to know a discipline. So we have a supplemental minor in classical education, but we want people to be historians or Latinists or uh, English literature scholars or mathematicians first, who are, who also uh, have studied the history and philosophy of classical education. And then we've just started our, uh, so that program, this minor, I think is about 10 years old, so long before my time, but we've just started the Master of Arts in Classical Education, uh, which has been a great success, at least from my perspective. I had my last class last Thursday, so finals on Friday. So, <laughs> um, but uh, it's a, it's a, it's a close knit community. I think the thing that surprised me most in my first month at Hillsdale uh, was what I've come to call the earnestness of the students here. I was in the cafe and I had an eerie moment when I realized every table was occupied. No one was talking to anyone else, but no one had a laptop open or a cell phone out. So everyone was drinking coffee, but what they were doing is they had very large paperback books open on the table and they were reading. So it's a very studious place. Um, now the conversations happen in the classrooms, but outside the classrooms, uh, it's 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 a bit monastic, I think. <laughs> um, so uh, it is tucked away but, there a little bit uh, out yes. of the way in Michigan. So. Yeah, we I like to say we're we're an hour and a half in any direction from civilization. So, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the students who come here uh, are serious about their studies, and they uh, they like they like reading books, and and they're fun is uh more of the same i think so uh they 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 put on shakespeare plays they uh, they uh uh yeah they act in act in our theater program or or pursue uh uh classical music or any number of edifying uh sorts of activities so it's a very serious place uh but that's that's uh we we study serious things not without mirth uh and jollity um but uh yeah this is a place to really get an education uh, uh uh continue that 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 process of carving and polishing that began uh you know with your parents or at your classical school all right well uh, this has been great um I've, I've enjoyed talking to you about all these things um I, i'd like um uh, um hopefully we can have you back again to talk a little bit more about uh language pedagogy more specifically i know you've involved with that i know you've had some conversations with some other folks here at cersei about that and so it's something we want to return to uh, if you'd be open to coming back for us absolutely yeah love to 
Great. Uh, and then I will, um, I know there's gonna be people asking me, what are the, some of those things he mentioned, the Roman books? So I'm going to get those from you and, and I'll put them into okay. our, um, our uh, show notes so people can kind of find those. Um, maybe if there are some that are available in translation, um, even that you have, that you recommend, that'd be good too. But again, thank you for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Okay. Thank you, Brandon. Well, thank you for joining us on Quiddity as we refresh ourselves at Cisterns of Learning Dug Long Ago, drawing from springs too deep for taint. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Join us next week for another conversation and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.